Revolution. When we hear the word revolution, our first thoughts go to rebellion, a revolt, an uprising. We define it as a forcible overthrow of a social order in favor of a new system. How would Jesus define his revolution? Did he come to earth to establish a physical kingdom, overthrowing the governments of the world by force? Or did he come to earth to establish something more, something greater? Revolution. That word can also mean something more internal, a change of heart, a change in the way of thinking about something or someone, a change of paradigm. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then that changes everything changes what we think about the world, each other, ourselves. His words were more than just words. Each and every one of them is a revolution. He flips the script on what it means to be human, to interact with the world. He turns the whole game on its head. Maybe it's time to reconsider everything that Jesus said about himself, about God, about life, about his kingdom. It's time to go back and take a second look. Come and see what it really means to be a part of the Jesus Revolution. Awesome. Well, happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter. Man, so glad you guys are able to be with us here today, whether you're in person or you're online, like Steve said just a moment ago, man. And uh, I, I just know for me, it's uh, this Easter, I'm just so thankful, just super, super thankful that we're able to join together in the way that we're joining together. I just think about all that's transpired over the last year and even what last Easter looked like. And uh, it just makes me exceptionally grateful that we, can, that we can be together in the way that we are today. So, so glad to see all of you guys. And you guys all look so nice, by the way. I love it. By the way, if you're like, is this what our church looks like dressed up? Yep, <clears throat> this is about as good as it gets for us. And so that's good, but you guys look awesome. It's great to see you. I wanna say if you are a guest with us today, if it's your first time at Grace, or if it's your first time back in a while, let me just say welcome or welcome back. We're, we're just so, so glad to have you and uh, so glad you're able to be with us. And I, I'm so thankful that we have the next moments that we do, the next minutes to hopefully press our hearts, our minds down on uh, the significance of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and for those of us who put our hope and faith in Christ, which I know is not everyone who's here today, but for many of us who, who, who do put our hope in Jesus, uh, this is it for us, this is it. Uh, it's all about the resurrection because everything that we put our hope in is contingent upon what we celebrate on this day. So I'm super excited to do that. I actually wanna start off the message today by asking kind of, it's gonna sound like an out of the blue question, but I promise it's related. Quick show of hands, how many of you remember or are familiar with those magic eye picture thingies. You guys know what I'm talking about? How many of you guys are familiar with those? You remember those magic eye things? Okay, so if you're not familiar with these, they actually were super popular back in the 90s, and there was almost like a fad for a while where these things came out. And this might be aging myself a little bit, but I actually remember when these things first came out. I remember I was a kid, and they used to have in the mall, they had these kiosks where they would have these things displayed and you could sit there and stare at these things. And, uh, and there's you know, these magic eye things. Now, I remember when I first saw them, this is kind of what they look like. I remember when I first saw it, it, it I, I had no idea what they were. And so it just looked like some kind of strange, abstract, you know, kind of modern art thing, sort of like funky wallpaper. And I didn't understand what it was. And if you guys have ever, here, here's, here's a picture of another one. And so it's just kind of this, it just sort of looks like this, sort of nonsensical, funky wallpaper pattern sort of thing, right? But of course, if you know how magic eyes work, if you look at this picture a certain way, if you focus on it a certain way, and if you fix your eyes a certain way, there actually is embedded in this um, a 3D image. 
And so if you look at it a certain way, uh, there's an optical illusion and a 3D image will pop out at you. And so, for example, with this picture, there actually is a image of Jesus Christ on the cross with a Roman soldier uh, with a spear that's in this, in this picture right here. And so you might be like, where's that at? Well, you have to look at it a certain way for that to pop out and for you to see that. Now, if you're like me, when these first came out, some people caught on really quick and they were able to see things very quickly. I was not one of those people. And so I remember I would go to the mall and I would spend way too much time standing in front of these things, and I could never see them. I could never see them. And people would be like, oh, it's a sailboat, or oh, it's a shark. And I'm like, where? And they're like, you need to look at it different. And, and I remember I tried and tried and tried. It was so frustrating. And what made it the most frustrating to me was, do you guys, some of you remember this, was that people that could see it, they would give you tips on how to see it. And it was so frustrating, because they'd be like, well, just, all you gotta do is just cross your eyes when you look at it. Or all you got to do, how'd you guys ever hear this one? Start with your nose on the picture and then back up slowly and you'll see the thing. Or they'd say things, this was my favorite, don't look at the picture, look through the picture. And I was like, what the heck does that even mean? I don't even know. And I was just frustrated until one day, and I remember one day I was at the mall and I was like, I'm not leaving until I get this thing. And I was sitting there in front of it. I had spent way more time than I wanted to. And all of a sudden my eyes got fatigued and they started to go double vision. And bam, there it was. And in one moment, in crystal clear focus, I still remember this super, super vividly, there was just an airplane, and it looked like it was flying off the page. And I was like, there it is. I see it. I saw it right there in that, in that moment, in that kind of thing. Now, I know as I'm talking about this, some of you aren't paying attention to a word I'm saying because you're trying to do this right now. And uh, just out of curiosity, did anyone get it? Anyone actually see it? Okay, we got a couple of people who actually did it. Um, it usually takes way longer than that, so that you guys are exceptional. But I do want to say, I, I'm going to take this down here, and I know it's going to frustrate you, but I asked the kind people behind the sound booth if they'd be willing to put this back up after the service. And so after service, if you want to spend some time messing around with this, you can come up here. We'll have it on the screen, and, and you can do that, all right? But here's the interesting thing. I actually went online this week, and I started to, uh, to study and research how magic eye pictures work. And it's fascinating. They're actually called stereograms. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. And I actually discovered something really interesting when I was reading about these. I discovered that I'm not smart enough to understand how they work. That's what I discovered. And, uh, and by the way, some of you know how they work, and you might want to come and tell me after the service, but don't because I don't really care. But basically, the way they work to the basic, my basic knowledge is this. It's all about how you look at it. It's all about how you focus your eyes. And embedded in this seemingly chaotic pattern that seems nonsensical, there's actually a series of images that when focused on correctly and when they are viewed in alignment, they create a 3D image that jumps off the page and that you can see. And so in other words, you have to look at this thing correctly in order to see what was intended. Now, some of you are asking, why in the world are we talking about Magic Eye on Easter Sunday? And here's why, because I believe, I believe that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, that his teaching, that his claims, the things that he said about himself, that his very pattern of life, that the cross, that all the things about Jesus Christ make absolutely zero sense apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, I'll put it this way, that it's only when you view Jesus in view of in an alignment to the resurrection, that his teaching, that his claims, that the cross makes sense. Apart from the resurrection, his teaching makes no sense. His claims make no sense. 
and his life makes no sense. But in light of the resurrection, everything comes into crystal clear focus. Now, my hope is that by the end of today's talk, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But let me show you what I mean. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you open it with me? I want to invite you to go to Luke chapter 24, all right? So would love it. I would love it if everyone in the room was able to get a Bible in front of them. So if you have a Bible app, open that up. If you need a Bible, there should be some under the chairs, page 738 in the Bibles under the chairs. If you're joining online, open up whichever app or if you have a physical Bible. I would just love it if you had the text right there in front of you. Luke 24 is where we're going to go. Let me just say, too, that if you don't own a Bible, if you're a person who maybe is new to the Bible or you don't own one, why don't you take one of ours? You can have it. We'd love for you to take that as a gift, and we'd love for you to start reading it. But what I want to do today is I actually want to take us back to the very first Easter over 2,000 years ago, all right? So what we're celebrating today, I want to go back to the original day, the original Easter Sunday. And more specifically, I actually want to take us back to a very specific geographical location, And where I want to take us is I want to take us to a particular stretch of road, a seven-mile stretch of road that that stretched between two historical cities. One is Jerusalem, where they crucified Jesus, and the other city is a place called Emmaus, a place called Emmaus. Now, today, we're actually going to learn a lot about this place called Emmaus, and I want to tell you something before we get into that. I want to tell you something I thought was cool. I don't know. Maybe you'll think it's cool. I thought this was fascinating. Back in September of 2019... Archaeologists confirmed, they released a bunch of different news articles like these ones that confirmed that they found, they have enough evidence to conclusively say that they found where Emmaus actually was, this city that we're about to read about. And so archaeologists say, we now know, we have enough historical evidence that we can conclusively say this is where Emmaus is. And it's interesting, I'll actually show it, show it to you on a map. It's in a place that's called modern day Kiriath Jerium. So I don't know if you guys see this. It's Kiriath-Jerium. That's actually where Emmaus is. Here is where Jerusalem is. So it's a seven-mile stretch between these two. And I don't know if you guys noticed, but in between those two is a McDonald's. So there you go. Somehow somehow America made its way into this story. So there we are. But what I want to show you today is that somewhere here in the world, somewhere on an ancient road between these two places, I think we're going to witness the most, the most amazing and the ultimate magic eye aha moment that ever happened on planet Earth. All right, so let's jump in. Let me show you. We're going to start off in verse 13. So let's get into it. Luke 24, verse 13. It says, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. We just talked about that, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. We just saw that. Now, before we, before we go any further, let me just pause here for a minute and let me give you a little context because we just jumped into this story without much context. So I want you to notice it starts off by saying, now that same day. And of course, what that's referring to is it's referring to the events that surround this that are in verses previous to this. And what is that? Well, you're going to find that this is talking about Easter Sunday. This is the first Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. So that same day, the Bible is going to introduce us to two of them. There was two, two individuals. And um, here's the thing we're going to learn about these two individuals we're going to see today. So we're introduced to these characters. This is the first time they're ever mentioned in the Bible, and it's the only time they're ever mentioned in the Bible. And you're going to discover as we go through this, there's actually not a whole lot that we know about them. We don't know a ton about these two people because the Bible doesn't really tell us a whole lot about these two people. But let me tell you three things we know for sure. So there are three things we know about them. Number one, we actually know that they were disciples of Jesus. So they were Jesus' disciples. Um, Some of your translations actually say that. 
It says that day, two disciples were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And by the way, a disciple, sometimes we think of the 12 disciples, but disciple is a word that just means student or follower is what it means. And so these were just two followers of Jesus. Jesus had more than just the 12. He had many followers. These would have been people who would have subscribed to Jesus's way of living. Uh, They would have believed the things that Jesus said about himself, and they would have opted to follow him. Okay, so they're disciples. Here's the second thing we know. We actually know one of their names of these two people. We're gonna find out in a few verses that one of these two is gonna be named. The other one, we, know, we, never, we never are told what their name is. And here's the third thing we're gonna learn. We know where they were coming from and where they were going. And where were they coming from? They were coming from Jerusalem where they crucified Jesus and they were headed to a place called Emmaus, a place called Emmaus. Now that might seem like a seemingly small, insignificant detail to you and I, but my hope is that you'll see, I think that that's actually a very, very significant, very significant little detail, very significant. And I'll get back to that in a minute. So keep that in the back of your head. Remember, Emmaus is important. Emmaus is important. In fact, it's so important. Turn to your neighbor real quick and just remind them, say, hey, Emmaus is important. Tell them. And say it like you're kind of frustrated with them. Like act like you're slightly annoyed, like they weren't paying attention or something. And be like, hey, come on, man. Emmaus is important. All right. So there you go. All right. So, so watch what happens next. So these two disciples walking, Jerusalem to Emmaus, here we go. The Bible's going to say in verse 14, as they were talking with each other, they were talking to each other about everything that had happened. So what were they discussing? Well, the Bible's going to say that they were talking about everything that had happened. And what's that referring to? Well, of course, if you read the previous chapters, it's talking about the events that transpired over the past few days. That would have been the arrest, the trial, and ultimately the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So they're recounting the events of what, what had happened. And then watch this. This is so cool. As they talked and they discussed these things with each other, here it is, Jesus himself, Jesus Christ himself, the one who was dead but now is alive, Jesus himself came up and he started to walk along with them. Now, I just gotta say this. Some of you have never read this story before. You've never read this account. And I'm super pumped if you never have before because it's awesome. And some of us have read this several times because it's a very famous Easter story but I got to tell you, whether this is your first time reading this or is your, this is your 50th time reading this, I, to me, this is maybe one of the coolest stories in all of the Bible. So you have these two disciples. They're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Jesus Christ himself, raised from the dead, joins them on this walk. But notice this interesting detail. But they were kept, they were kept from recognizing him. They were kept from recognizing him. It's interesting Some of you have some different translations of the Bible in front of you, and some of your translations say their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And actually, that's that's actually a very accurate translation. In the original Greek language, which is the language that the New Testament was written in, it actually has a strong emphasis on the word eyes, on the word eyes, that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And what you're going to see as we continue in this story is the eyes are actually a major theme how you see things, how you perceive things, the way that you look at things. That's gonna be a major theme in this story. And so the Bible's gonna say that they were unable to recognize Jesus even though he was right there with them. And of course, we ask the question, why in the world were they not able to recognize him? Well, let's just see if the text gives us any indication why that might be the case. So look what happens. Jesus comes up to them and then he asks them, what are you guys talking about? What are you guys talking about? What are you guys discussing as you walk along? He asks them. And I want you to notice this question that Jesus asks before they answer, 
The Bible is going to tell us that the, the impact that this question had. So the Bible is going to say this. It says that they stood still with their faces downcast. They stood still with their faces downcast. Now, I, I want to just pause there for a minute because I want, you, I want to just draw this out for a second. Why don't you think about this with me? Jesus just came up to these guys. They don't know it's him. And Jesus said, what are you guys talking about? We know what they were talking about. They were talking about the crucifixion. So they're, they're talking about Jesus dying on the cross. And when Jesus brings up this topic, I want you to notice the effect that it has on them. The Bible says that these two disciples who are walking literally are, are, are stopped in their tracks by this question. They stood, they stopped, they stood still. And then the Bible says that their faces were downcast. In other words, they were, they were deeply despondent when Jesus brought up this topic. And listen, here's all I'm saying is, I think this gives us great indication that for these two disciples, the, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was more than just like kind of a bummer to them. I think it's very clear that this was more than just some news that was really hard to take. I think it's very evident that this was something that was deeply personal to these two individuals. This was something that hurt them deeply. Did you guys ever have a time in your life when there was something that was so emotionally hard for you, something so raw, something that hurt so bad, that when someone brought it up or even mentioned it to you, that it took the wind out of you, that caused you to stop because it just, it just hurt so bad. Did you ever have that before? And I want you to notice that in this passage, that's exactly the effect. This, think about this for a minute. These two were disciples. They were disciples. What, and most likely what that means is, is it, meant, it probably meant that they sold everything they had to follow Jesus. It probably meant that they left a certain lifestyle because they believed that Jesus Christ, what he said about himself was true. They probably bought into everything Jesus said, all of his claims. Jesus claimed some crazy stuff. Jesus said that he was God's son. They believed it, they followed him. Jesus said he was gonna start a kingdom and his kingdom was gonna last forever and they bought into it. And then he died and their hopes were crushed. And so the Bible says when Jesus asked him about it, it hit him hard, it hit him hard. And then watch this next thing. One of them, named Cleopas, there you go. Remember I told you we know one of their names? There it is, so we know Cleopas, we don't know the other one. So one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, now notice this question, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? Now, I, I just, I gotta point this out. One of my favorite things about this, this story, about this account, is do you notice the deep irony? It's deeply ironic. And so here's, here's Jesus. He comes up and he says, what are you guys talking about? And then Cleopas looks and he says, dude, are you the only one? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that had happened? Like, are you the only one? And it's ironic because Jesus isn't, he doesn't just, he doesn't just know about what happened. He is what happened, right? He's what happened. And not only is he what happened, he's actually the only one who truly understands what happened, and so it's really ironic that he would ask this question. So Cleopas is like, dude, where have you been? Are you the only one who doesn't know? And I love Jesus' response. This is so awesome. Look at Jesus. What things? What things? I just love that. It's like classic Jesus right there. If I was Jesus, you know what I would have said? Of course I know what things. I'm Jesus, dummy. That's what I would have said. Which is another good reason why I'm not Jesus, and he is. Jesus is so awesome. You know, the day he raises from the dead, he's taking this walk with his disciples. He's like, you guys tell me, what's going on? And look what they say. Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Now, man, you just can't make this stuff up. Here's two disciples of Jesus talking to Jesus about Jesus 
who they don't know is Jesus. So what are you guys talking about? Jesus of Nazareth, they said to Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, hmm, I don't know. Sounds like a cool guy. Tell me about him. And so they go on and look what they say. They say, well, he was a prophet. It's powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And this is a very important statement because what it's doing is it's actually giving us a window into their perception of Jesus. Who do these guys think Jesus is? Well, they answer. They say, well, Jesus is a man. He was a prophet. In other words, they said, well, gosh, he, he had to have been from God. Like, we don't fully understand who he was, but we know that he had to have some kind of spiritual connection to God that was different than most people. And he was, man, he was powerful in word. He was a teacher. Oh my gosh, the stuff he taught was just revolutionary. You should have heard some of the things he said. He was powerful indeed. Man, he, was, he loved people. You should have seen the way he cared for the marginalized. He healed people. I mean, clearly there was something, something unique going on with this guy. Now, here's what's so fascinating is I want you to notice that all of these different perceptions that they have about Jesus are, many, are the perceptions that many of us, many people have today. And so if you were to ask someone, in fact, for, even for some of you who are in this room, some of you are investigating Jesus, you're still not entirely sure what you think about him. And, and for some of you, you would agree with these. You'd be like, look, son, I don't really know who he is, but I know, I know he's some kind of spiritual guru guy. Like, I know that. He, I know he was a powerful teacher. I mean, no one can contest that. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about the things he taught. Clearly, he was someone who cared about people. He was powerful indeed. A lot of people have those different opinions about Jesus. Some of us have those different opinions about Jesus. But notice that it stops there for them. That's where it stops. And this is going to lead into the next two verses. And I believe that the next two verses that we're going to read contain within them the most ironic statement possibly in the entire Bible. I think so. What, what is it? Well, notice, notice what it says. So they go on and they said, the chief priests and our rulers handed Jesus over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Now watch this next thing. They crucified him. But we had hoped, notice past tense, we had hoped, had, and not just past tense, it was pointed out to me, this isn't just the past tense, this is also called the imperfect tense, which means it's not a momentary hope, it is a long hope. We had long hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, do you guys catch this? I believe this is the most ironic statement in all the Bible. What did they just say? We had hoped, we had hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem us. We had hoped, but he was crucified. But he was crucified. In other words, we hoped, we had hoped that Jesus was gonna save us, but he was crucified. He went to the cross. Do you hear the irony? of what they're saying right here in this moment. And I believe that it's very possible, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's very possibly, uh, possible that right here, these two disciples possibly just exposed one of the reasons that they were unable to recognize Jesus. And why is that? Well, it's super clear from this passage that for these two disciples, Jesus' crucifixion was not viewed as a victory. It wasn't seen as a victory. It's really clear when you, when you read this, the cross for these guys was not part of the plan. The cross was a tragic disruption to all of their hopes and to all of their expectations. It's very clear when you read this. And so, so they weren't expecting this. They weren't expecting this. And, and so because of that, when Jesus was, they'd hoped that he was the redeemer, but when he, cru when he was crucified, the Bible says that their hopes were smashed along with Jesus. And so what did they do? They packed up their stuff and they left to go to a city called, remind me, which town were they headed to again? Emmaus. 
Remember I said that's important? You're like, yeah, that was important. Why is that important? Okay, well, let me tell you why. So let me help you out real quick. If you are someone who is new to the Bible, if you're kind of a new Bible reader, I want to tell you something that was super helpful to me and continues to be super helpful to me. I hope it's helpful to you when I started reading the Bible as well. So when you read the Bible, one of the things you're going to find out is that the biblical authors are very sparing in detail. And so they are, they are not going to tell you a bunch of things that you really wish they would tell you more about, right? So for example, um, we almost know nothing about Jesus' childhood. We know very little about his upbringing. And I think for a lot of us, myself included, I would love to know more about what Jesus was like as a kid. I'm like, that would just be cool to know what he was like. But the Bible doesn't want to tell us much about it. And we wish it would, but it doesn't. Um, there's a bunch of, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us really anything about, I mean, very little about Jesus's appearance. I think for some of us, we think that'd be really cool to know what did Jesus look like, you know, and what, what did that, but we don't really know because the Bible doesn't really tell us a whole lot about that. And the reason that's important is because the biblical authors, they don't waste words. They just don't waste words. And so whenever you're reading the Bible, here, here's a little hint. Whenever you, you're reading the Bible and you go and you read past something that seems like a seemingly insignificant detail, it's not. It's not. Everything is there on purpose, and it usually means something. And so when it says Emmaus, you and I can be like, I don't know, Emmaus, archaeologist just discovered it. It's kind of a little, I don't, who knows what was going on there. But here's what I want you to know is to the first century reader, when they read Emmaus, for them, they would have been like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes all kinds of sense to us. That would have meant something to them when they would have heard Emmaus. Now, what would it have meant? Well, do you guys know how, you guys know how there's certain cities that are associated with certain things? There's certain cities that represent different ideologies and different backstories. You guys know what I'm talking about? So here's a modern day example. In our country, this is true. So let, let's say that we were out in the cafe and we were talking and I told you that me, me and my wife were gonna take our kids on a field trip. So we got four kids. And let's say that I said, we're teaching our kids about American politics and about American government, okay? And so we're talking about the structure of politics within our nation and the structure of our government. And we're gonna go on a field trip together. Now, I haven't even told you what city we're gonna go to on this field trip, but my guess is you probably can narrow it down. And there's probably, there, there's a lot of places we could go, but there's probably one place that you have in mind when I say that we're gonna study the structure of American government. And where do you think it is that we're gonna go? Tell me, which city? Probably Washington, D.C., Right? Now, there's other cities you can go for American history and government, but that's probably what you'd think. How about this one? If I had a friend who said that she was an aspiring country musician, and she wanted to get discovered and wanted to pursue a career in country music, and she said, I'm going to move to a city to increase my chances of that happening, what city is she moving to? She's going to Nashville. We all know that. There's a backstory. There's a lot of things that happen in Nashville, but it's known for one thing. It's known for country music is really its thing. How about this one, all right? If someone said, I want to study film and I want to pursue potentially being an actor, where are they moving? Probably Hollywood, right? How about this one? If someone said, I want to study the source of evil and all that's sinful in this world, what city in America are they moving to? Tell me, which one? They're going to Pittsburgh, right? We all know that that's true. That's true, right? So... <laughs> But if you're from Pittsburgh, I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. It's just, it's a cat wearing Steeler stuff. Come on. It's Easter. So I don't know what that has to do with Easter, but anyway. So, so, when, the, so when, when Luke says the two disciples, they're going to Emmaus, the, the disciples and everyone that was reading this would have been like, oh, right. Yeah, we know what's going down in Emmaus. 
And what would have Emmaus meant? What was, what was Emmaus, what was the backstory? What was it that the, the ideology that Emmaus was known for? Well, they would have thought, certainly what they would have thought is they would have thought of this guy right here. This guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus or Judas the Maccabee is what he's sometimes called. This isn't an actual photo of him, by the way. But uh, he's, Maccabee means hammer. And Judah the hammer, Judas the hammer, was actually a, uh, was considered a Jewish hero in, uh, in Jewish history. Judas, Judas Maccabee, Judas the hammer. And the reason is because um, he was a revolutionary leader who actually started a revolution that was called the Maccabean Revolt. That's what he was known for. And so when you hear Emmaus, you would think about this guy right here. He was a hero to the Jews, which is fascinating to me because I think when I, when I think about this, I automatically think of another hero who carries a hammer. And who is that? Tell me. Thor. So I don't know if Judas Maccabee looked like this. I envision him doing that. I don't know if he's that jacked, but there, there you have it. But the reason that he was so famous is because he actually started this thing called the Maccabean Revolt. And there was a very, very famous battle that happened in Emmaus. It was called the Battle of Emmaus. And without getting too deep into history, let me just give you a few key features of what went down in the Battle of Emmaus. Okay, so here's what went down. Uh, in the second century BC, so about 150 years before Jesus was on the scene, the Syrian Greek regime invaded Israel. So before the Romans, the Romans were the ones who crucified Jesus. Some of you guys remember that. Before the Romans were in power, it was the Greeks. It was the Greeks. And we're told from history that the Greek came in, that the Syrian Greek regime came in, they invaded Israel. And after they invaded Israel, they forbade the Jews to practice their religion, demanding that they worship Greek idols. Okay, so I want you to catch this. This was political oppression against religious freedom. Right, that's what's going on here. This was the Greek government saying, you cannot do, you cannot practice your religion. And you need, to, you need to adopt our ideologies, okay? So this is what was going on in this time. And so as you can imagine, there was this undercurrent of angst among the Jewish people who were just saying, we have had enough of this. We have had enough of this. We have had enough of this. And all of it culminated in one event that happened in history. And it was this event right here. It's recorded for us. In 167 BC, Greek soldiers actually forced a Jewish man to slaughter a pig on the altar. Now, if you guys know anything about Judaism, this would have been an absolute, absolute desecration. This would have been terrible. Uh, to the Jewish people, a pig was considered an unclean animal. To sacrifice a pig on the altar would have been outside of the bounds of scripture. This was a spit in the face to the Jewish religion is what it was. Well, this, this created a serious, serious frustration in the Jewish people where they basically said, that is enough. And there was one particular family, the Maccabees, and specifically Judas Maccabee, who said, that's it, enough. And basically he said this, he said, stop, it's hammer time. <laughs> and um, it's actually where that, that's, that, that phrase actually was originated. It's in the Greek, you can go back and study it there. But basically what happened was this was the event that sparked the Maccabean revolt. And so Judah Maccabee came in, he killed the, uh, the uh, Greek soldiers, and then he also killed the Jewish man who had slaughtered the pig. And then they began this whole upheaval. Judah Maccabee uh, basically um, inspired an entire army of Jews to, to revolt against the Greek army, and they reclaimed the temple. And this actually became a very historical event in the history of the Jews. Some of you might know this is actually the basis for the celebration of Hanukkah. The Jews today still celebrate this event. Judas Maccabee was the hero. Now, what's fascinating is, is you can actually read history now 
that recounts the Battle of Emmaus. And I want to show you just one excerpt from a historical document called First Maccabees. And here's what it says about this battle. It says, the Judas and his warriors moved out to attack the king's forces in Emmaus. Okay, this is the Battle of Emmaus. The same Emmaus we just talked about. Now look what happens. Judas said to those who were with him, so he rallied his troops, and Judas said, don't fear. Remember how our ancestors were saved at the Red Sea when Pharaoh with his forces pursued them. Now, some of you might not know what he's talking about here, but he's actually referring to something that happened in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God liberated his people from the Egyptian government that was oppressing them. And so he said, remember how God liberated his people from that oppressive government. And then he says this, and now let's us cry to heaven and see whether God will favor us and remember his covenant with our ancestors and crush this army before us today. Bring the hammer and then everyone will know that there is no one or there is one who redeems and there is one who saves Israel. Now I want you to see what Judas Maccabee just said there. Judas Maccabee said, raise up Jewish soldiers and let's fight against the Greeks and let's ask God to give us favor to kill them all so that then they will see that there is one who redeems and saves Israel. And by the way, that's exactly what happened. And so the revolt took place and the Jews reclaimed the temple. Now, I want you to think about this with me for a second. Here you have two disciples who are walking on the road back to the city, back to the city of Emmaus. What happened in Emmaus? This is what happened in Emmaus, right? And these are two disciples who definitely grew up knowing this story. They knew this story. They would have celebrated they would have celebrated this, this, this hero. They would have hailed Judas Maccabee as a hero. And now I want you to notice, I want you to notice the words of Judas Maccabee and compare that with what they say about Jesus in Luke 24. Right? There is one who redeems and saves Israel. Now look what they say. We had hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one. So think about this. Here's these two disciples who grew up here in these stories they were certainly familiar with the text that we just read. And then Jesus of Nazareth comes in, and the Roman government is oppressing the Jewish people. And Jesus comes around, and he starts preaching, and he starts saying things like, I am here to start a kingdom, and I am here to, 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 to bring in God's kingdom, and that kingdom is going to last forever. And then Jesus amasses a group of disciples and it grows and people follow him. And then he charges into Jerusalem during the week of Passover. What are the disciples expecting is gonna happen? I tell you what they're expecting. They're expecting the hammer to come down. They're expecting something like a revolution. They're expecting maybe something like we've even seen over the past few months in our own government where there is some kind of storming of the capital. They're probably expecting riots. My guess is they're anticipating that this means that some Romans are gonna die. That's probably what they're thinking. But then, rather than bringing the hammer, Jesus Christ takes the hammer on himself and he is crushed. He is crushed on the cross. And the Bible says that they had hoped he was the one that was gonna be redeemed, but indeed he was the one who was crucified. Now let me tell you why this is the most ironic statement in the Bible. The reason is because the very thing, the very thing that they thought made Jesus Christ a failure is the very thing that made Jesus Christ our victor. And the very thing that they thought had crushed their hopes that Jesus was the redeemer was the very thing that Jesus used to bring about our redemption. And they missed it. They didn't see it. And then they went on. Look what they say next. They said, so this all happened. And then they said, and then what's more, 
It's the third day since all this took place. And, and man, some of our women, they like, they amazed us. We went to the tomb early this morning and they didn't, they didn't find his body. They're like, that confused us. And then they said, and then they came and they told us that they saw a vision of angels and they said that he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. And I want you to notice, these guys are confused. They're like, we don't get it, man. And it's almost, for them, it's almost like, like looking at a magic eye picture for the first time. They're like, we can't make sense. It seems like it, it's so nonsensical. We put our hope in Jesus. Then he died. We thought he was gonna redeem, but he didn't. Now they can't find his body. We can't make sense of any of it. And I love what Jesus says. Look what Jesus does. Jesus comes in and he says this to them. How foolish, how foolish you are. How slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. By the way, that's referring to the Old Testament, what the Old Testament teaches. And he said this, did not the Messiah, now notice this, have to, have to suffer in order to enter into his glory. In other words, Jesus says, you're looking at it all wrong. You're looking at it all wrong. It seems chaotic to you. It seems crazy to you, but that's because you're not looking at it correctly. And then look at this next thing. I love this. This is maybe one of my favorite verses. It's worth memorizing. I would encourage you to. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. Now notice this, concerning himself. Now this is so cool. When it says Moses, by the way, that's a shorthand way of talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. When he says the prophets, that's talking about the prophets of the Old Testament. And when he says all the scriptures, he's referring to the whole Old Testament. So what is this? This is Jesus Christ taking the disciples page by page through the entire Old Testament and explaining to them how the whole thing is about him. Every page. I just gotta tell you, if I could be present for any Bible study on planet Earth, I would wanna be in on this one. Old Testament survey with Jesus Christ as the teacher. And Jesus basically showed them. He said, that page, that page, that page, you're looking at the text, but you need to look through the text because when you look through the text, you'll see the whole thing is talking about me. And so the Bible says that they kept walking and they walked somewhere and we don't know where all this happened. It's very possible it happened somewhere near McDonald's for all we know. <laughs> they kept walking and look at this. The Bible says, and then as they approached the village to which they were going, this is, so, this is so good. Jesus just acted like he was going further. He's like, see you guys, I'm done. And, and then they, of course, they urged him strongly. They're like, no, no, please don't go. Stay with us because it's nearly evening and the day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Now watch this. When he was at the table with them, he, broke bre he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. All right, now, now this is very important. Let me ask you guys, some of you know the answer to this question, some of you might not, and that's okay. When is the last time we saw Jesus take bread, give thanks, break it, and give it to his disciples? When's the last time? It's Passover. It was the night before he was crucified. And the Bible says, now this is so cool, in that moment when Jesus did that, look at this, then, right then and there, their eyes were open and they recognized him. Right then, the most amazing, most spectacular magic eye moment happened and they saw him. They saw him as he was. And all, in that moment, they were like, ah, it's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And he's not dead. He's alive. And he's right here. And I love this. Look, look at this next thing. And he disappeared from their sight. <laughs> so the moment it happened, Jesus is like, I'm out. He's gone. And, 
and they saw him, and then he was out, and then these two disciples are left there. They're just left there, and they're just staring at each other, and, and look at what they said. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning? Weren't they burning inside of us? When he walked with us and explained to us the scriptures, were not our hearts and on fire? When he was walking us through and he was showing us how everything is about him, how our hearts exploded with hope on that road. And can I just tell you something? This maybe is a personal comment. I am so thankful that this verse is in the Bible because I believe this isn't just something that happened. I believe this is something that happens, continues to happen. I remember when I first read this, it put into words something that I had experienced over and over again that I couldn't find ample words to communicate. Listen, for some of you, you know what I'm talking about. For some of you, even right now, inexplicably, you don't know how you know this, but you know that what we're talking about right now is not a fable. It's not just some ancient story. You know it's real. And you don't even know how you know. But somehow when we read these pages, your heart, something in your heart is on fire. I know that feeling. I've had that before. So what happens? Well, look at this. The Bible says, they got up. This was their response. They got up and they returned at once to, tell me, where did they go? Jerusalem. They went back. Now remind me again, where were they at? They were in Emmaus. They were in Emmaus. And they got up at once and they went back to Jerusalem. So, so catch this. I want you to catch this. They just left Jerusalem, the city of the cross. They went to Emmaus, the city of the hammer. Once they got there, they saw the resurrected Jesus. And they immediately got back up. And it was dark out. And they went immediately seven miles back. They said, we got to go right back. We can't even stop at McDonald's and get a filet of fish. We got to go right down to Jerusalem. What's happening? What was it that caused them to say, we got to get back to Jerusalem? What made them leave the city of the hammer to go back to the city of the cross? And here's what I believe. I believe it's very significant because what this is telling us is that for the disciples, that when they saw the resurrected Jesus, it forced them to rethink everything. They had to rethink everything. Everything about Jesus, everything about them, everything about life, about the vision of life had to be rethought out. And it caused them to leave, to even leave the paradigm of living and to enter into a new paradigm of thinking. So they went back, they went back to Jerusalem. Here's what I believe, you guys. Here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe that this world has a pattern. I I think that there's a way to this world. There's a way this world operates. And can I tell you, I think we all know this. It's the way of the hammer. It's the way the world works. You hit me, I hit you back. You hurt me, I hurt you back. It's the way of the hammer. Is this, not, is this not what we see in our politics? And isn't this what we see in our media and our social media? Isn't this what we see even in, for some of us, our own living rooms? Say, this way of the hammer. E- listen, even, even for those of us who follow Jesus, even for us, we'll say things like, yes, we should love Yes, we should pray. Yes, we should bless those who curse and we should love our enemies. But even us will ask the question, but how far do we take it? When is enough enough? And when do we need to bring the hammer? And listen, I think Jesus demonstrated for us a very, very radically different way of life. And Jesus showed us that we leave the hammer. 
and that we take up the cross, that we leave the way of the hammer and we pursue. Listen, Jesus, he didn't just teach this stuff. He didn't just say we should love our enemy and we should bless those who curse us because they're just nice, sentimental things to say. He practiced them, and he practiced them all the way into the cross of Jerusalem, and he, allowed, he didn't take the hammer. He let the hammer take him, and he took up the cross and loved his enemies all the way to the end. It's what he's done for us. And listen, if I could just be really honest with you, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, this, this might sound so sacrilegious to some of you, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then his teaching is dumb. If we're just being honest, his teaching makes no sense. It's dumb. Because you love your enemy, and then what happens? They kill you. And then you're dead. And then you lost. Right? If, you, if, you, if you look at Jesus' teaching, and you pray for those who persecute you, and you bless those who curse you, what happens? They take advantage of you. And they hurt you. And that's dumb. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then following him is a sham. I mean, let's just be honest, guys. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, this is, everything we're doing right now is a big, colossal waste of time. Why are we doing this? But if he did, because he did, that means that, listen, everything that Jesus ever said about himself and about life and about the afterlife and about everything is validated and is vindicated because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, that means this. We have to rethink everything about everything, about our life, about a vision of life, and what it means to be part of his kingdom. There's so much more we could say. And honestly, there's so much more that we are going to say. Steve talked about the next series we're going to jump into, which really talks about the way of life in the kingdom of Jesus. But as we kind of close our time together here, before we sing, I'm going to invite the band to come up. And I just want to close out our time by just addressing three audiences and then we'll pray and we're done. All right, so number one, let me just speak to the person who's investigating Jesus. Okay, so if you're a person who's here today or you're watching today and you are investigating Christ and you're like, I'm exploring my faith, I'm not sure what I believe about Jesus and I'm still thinking about it. Um, let me just say to you, we say this all the time, but we mean it. We count it such an honor that you would let us be part of your investigation. You could do anything you want with your Sunday morning, but the fact that you would spend time with us, we just think that that's awesome. But let me just say, if you're a person investigating Jesus, you might have a lot of questions about the Bible and about religion. And maybe for you, this whole Christianity thing is like looking at a magic eye picture. It's confusing to you. It doesn't make sense. And you're like, I don't see what everyone else is seeing. It just doesn't make sense to me. And if you have a lot of questions, I want to help you out with something that we say often, and I still think it's so true, and it's this. You may have a lot of questions about faith and the Bible and even about the church, but there's one question that I think trumps all other questions, and it's this one. It's, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Did he? Because listen, if he didn't, then who cares? I mean, honestly, who cares? But if he did then I think we need to take everything he said very, very, very seriously. So I would encourage you, if you're investigating Christ, let me help you narrow your search. Would you just answer that question first? Chase that one. Did Jesus raise from the dead? And some of you are like, well, where can I go to find responses to that question? 
And so I want to point you to two resources that I think are really helpful. We, we do this almost every Easter, but I think they're super helpful. One is called The Case for Easter. You can take a picture of this screen if you want to. One is called The Case for Easter. It's a book by Lee Strobel, and it unearths just incredible evidences for a historical, bodily, literal resurrection. And if you've never dug into it, I would encourage you to check it out. It's also a really phenomenal talk that's given by William Lane Craig. He's an apologist. It's called The Evidence for the Resurrection. He gave this talk at Yale University. You can access it on YouTube or reasonablefaith.org for free. It's about an hour in length. You can watch it today. Watch it tonight. Watch it. But I'm just saying, if you're investigating Jesus, take the investigation seriously and really dig at this. If he didn't raise from the dead, then who cares? But if he did, we do rethink everything. Number two, let me talk for a second about those who are followers of Jesus. So I know that uh, some of you are investigating. There are many of us who are here today who would say that our faith is put in the resurrected Christ. And because of that, I think a couple things. First off, we have something to sing about today, and we're going to have a chance to sing. And I would encourage you to sing from your heart because Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, that means that we have a new hope. But I want to encourage all of us who follow Jesus, and actually everyone in the room, next week we're starting a brand new series. And like I said, what we said was, if Jesus rose from the dead, that means that we need to take his words, not casually. We need to take them very seriously. And so next week we're starting a series where we're actually going to study the revolutionary life that Jesus calls us into. We're going to start looking at Jesus' most famous sermons called the Sermon on the Mount. And I would encourage you to dig in. Jesus offers us a paradoxical way to live that is revolutionary and is counterintuitive to the way of the world. So we're gonna dig in that together. I wanna encourage you to join us for that. And lastly, let me just talk to the person who is, whose heart is burning here today. And for some of you, as we're opening up these pages and we're reading this story, maybe you, this is your first time in church ever. Maybe this is your first time in church in a while and maybe for you, your relationship with God is non-existent, but somehow, as we're reading these words, there's something in your heart that is inexplicably telling you that this is real and this is true. And let me just say that if that's you and you're experiencing that, I wanna tell you what I am convinced and what we are convinced that that is here at our church. We believe, this is gonna sound crazy to you. We believe that Jesus Christ is alive, like legit alive. And we believe that because he's alive, that through the power of his Holy Spirit, that he is inviting you into a relationship with himself. And I would just say that if you feel that, if you sense that Jesus Christ is knocking on the door of your heart, even in these moments, my strongest encouragement to you would be to not stiff arm him and not ignore him. Don't just walk away and let this be another conversation that impacted you for a moment and then was forgotten about afterwards. I would encourage you to do this. Open the door. Just let him in. And I know it's scary for some of you. You don't know what that means if you were to open up your heart to Jesus. But I would encourage you, he loves you. He loves you. He died for you. He's forgiven you. And he's offering you new life through the resurrection. And so you could embrace him. You could talk to him. Just between you and God, just talk to him. Open up your heart to him, even in these moments, because he has risen from the dead. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, thank you that you did rise and thank you that because of the resurrection, there's a hope that we can anchor ourselves in. Because you raised Jesus, that means that, that, that means that there's all kinds of implications now about what that means about you and your way of life and what that means about being your disciples and what that means about everything that you said about everything. 
And so Jesus, I ask you in these next moments as we get a chance to pray and sing out to you that we would just sing from the heart. Help us to speak honestly with you and just connect with you in these next moments that we have. And thank you that we can because you're alive. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.